Welcome to the Whereas Hoops podcast. I'm Noah Cohan. And I'm John Early. And we are so thrilled to be joined today by my friend and colleague, the Director of American Culture Studies here at WashU, Ron Martin. Um, short timer because he's on his way to exciting things. Ron has been named the Director of the Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute at Stanford University. And he'll be starting that role in January. Um, we in AMCS, me personally, and also my colleagues are so thrilled for Lerone. You've been such a wonderful colleague and director, and we're so happy for you. It's such an incredible opportunity. Um, and so I just, I just got to put that out there right off the top. But I wanted to start uh, to explain why um, we are having you on the podcast today. Um, Lerone um, is a basketball fan. He's a, a black man in St. Louis. Uh, he's a user of Forest Park, so he's got a lot of things going for him. The one particular thing, Lerone, that I'm excited to hear you talk about today is your experience as a faculty fellow on the South 40, which are the, the dorms here at the WashU campus, where there is a basketball hoop, I believe the closest basketball hoop to the park currently. Um, it is not a public uh, facility. It is um, a hoop for WashU students, but that doesn't mean the public doesn't use it. And <laughs> maybe you can speak to that as well. So that is part of the experience. Those are some of the things that we're excited to talk to you about today. Now I'm taking up all the oxygen. <laughs> I'm doing a bad thing. So please welcome. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. And, and thank you for all the kind kind words that you've, you've said about me. It's been a joy working with you and I, I love your podcast, and I'm just excited to be uh, counted in the number. So thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Okay, so tell us how you came to be a faculty fellow and when you first noticed the, the basketball facilities and how they were being used. I became a faculty fellow um, in um, the fall of 2018, which is a position where a faculty member lives in a residential uh, college. Uh, here at WashU on the wonderful South 40, which is the section of campus that is um, the dorms um, where uh, freshmen, excuse me, first year and second year students live. Um, and it's a beautiful uh, part of the campus. It looks like a small little Hollywood town. You know, it's got like little storefronts and uh, <laughs> really nice dorms. And included in that is this uh, basketball court and a small playground for mostly for the faculty fellows who have children, but the basketball court um, has six hoops. So there, there are two courts you could play kind of a full, uh, full 90 feet if you wanted to. And then there are uh, two courts, or if you wanted to, you could play the shorter distance and play across that way. So there are hoops down here and it's a, it's a, it's a nice court. It's a really nice court. The, 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 you know, for those who are basketball fans will know what I mean when I say this, it actually has glass backboards. I mean, like you don't find glass hoops, you know, glass backboard hoops, you know, out in outdoor facilities in most places and actual nets. They're not, you know, chain nets, you know, they're actual like, you know, nets. And so it's a really nice court um, down here. And I think the first time, um, the first time I noticed anything about these courts was kind of folklore and it was by uh, um, some of the staff who lived here on the South 40 for quite some time, excuse me, worked here on the South 40 for quite some time. And it was during the summertime when, when school was out and there was probably no students here. And the basketball courts were full of people and it were mostly African-Americans, not exclusively, but mostly. 
and uh, they were playing and I was like, oh, that's, that's, you know, where are all these people coming from? It was just curious because it, it's so quiet down here on the summertime and then you just hear people playing basketball and music. And so one of the staff folks told me that when school was out, like the day after graduation, the university apparently used to remove all the rims. All the rims would be removed. And apparently there was someone, I'm unsure as to who, but apparently the folklore is someone complained about this and said that this was racist in the sense that the university or facilities knew apparently that most of the people who played in the summertime were African-American. Now, these could have been African-American folks who work here at the university. There's a dining hall down here that has a number of African-American workers. Um, facilities also has a number of workers of color. So it could have been uh, these folks who were playing. It could have been their children, their loved ones. I don't know. But there was a complaint about move, removing the hoops and how this was an act that, as Noah's pointed out, one of the few courts in the area where people could play closest to Forest Park. So apparently because of some of the debates or some of the uh, complaints, the hoops were put back up. So for the first summer, 28, uh, see that would have been the summer of 2019, the hoops were up. Now the summer of 2020 comes along um, and COVID hits, right? The university shuts down and um, the hoops were removed. I'd say probably April, the hoops were gone. But they left the volleyball net up. <laughs> and it's got a nice little, little little sand pit over there for like full on beach volleyball in St. Louis, right? It's a nice little sand pit with a volleyball net. And it stayed up. And so, you know, people would be out there bumping the ball back and forth, maybe two or three people. You know, this is when the, in the heat of the pandemic, right? Everything is shut down. People are People are afraid to touch their mail, right? Like people are, you know, getting Lysol, spraying their mail down. They're spraying their pizzas, right? People are terrified. It's April. And then one day, about 15 cars just like pulled up, parked on the side. And about like 20 to 25 white folks came down here, shirts off, bikini tops, playing beach volleyball (laughs) and this was the moment when people were like afraid to be near other humans right this is probably this is like the first really warm day in april and like i just kind of like looked out my window and took a photo and was like what the hell like like i literally got nervous because you know there was so much news swirling around about covid and, and 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 how you could catch covid and now granted these people were several hundred feet away from me, but it's just like, I was afraid, you know, what all this meant. And then it struck me. I'm like, the first thing they did was took down these basketball hoops, but like this volleyball net is still up. And so because of the amount of people and they were, you know, socializing like you, they would normally would on any day in April in St. Louis when it's 80 degrees, somebody called the police. And they dispersed the crowd. They all got in their cars and they left. And eventually, later that day, the volleyball net was taken down. And it just struck me about, you know, how consciously or unconsciously um, how the volley- the basketball courts were, were the immediate target, but the volleyball net was not. 
And I wonder if that were the, you know, I don't know, because both of those sports, while team sports, you know, are outdoors. And, you know, we know now that, you know, for the most part, probably was not the most risky behavior to be playing sports outdoors. But it was fascinating to me that the decision was made by somebody to make sure the hoops were taken down, but the volleyball court stayed up, volleyball net stayed up. Right. So the so the epidemiological threat and a, a sort of racist racist perception of threat from from black men presumably were kind of elided in this moment and and uh, you know the notion that <laughs> that volleyball could be a spot for contagion didn't even occur to people. Yeah, I mean, it's I, I I agree with you. I mean, this is what makes this is what makes racism so pernicious, right? Is that, and I mean, and, and lots of historians and government reports have said this, right? That it's so pervasive that one doesn't have to be deliberate about it, right? I mean, it's just like patriarchy or sort of male-centered ideas. You don't necessarily have to think about it and be deliberately uh, mean. Um, uh, or reflective about it in order for it to have an impact. And, you know, I, I, I'm sure that the person who was like, let's move the basketball hoops, you know, give them the benefit of the doubt that they weren't thinking about, let's make sure we stop this predominantly African-American sport, you know. But that's the point, right? Is that if we're, if we're not thinking about these things and about their racial impact, you know, they can just continue to go on unabated. And I think, that's what's something that struck me in that moment. You know, it really did. It really did strike me in that moment. Absolutely. So during the school year, I mean, I'm assuming plenty of students uh, use the, the basketball facilities. Um, do you see mingling uh, from, you know, I know you can't tell automatically whether someone is a community member or students, but are there, are there any, uh, do you have any awareness or sense that there is a sort of, uh, public court use that's going along with the students from the dorm? I do. I do. Um, I, I feel like the one way I try to tell is um, when I look out my window or I walk outside is by age, is that sometimes you can kind of tell because most of the students who live down here are first years. And so sometimes if there's older folks down here, white or black, they could be seniors living off campus, coming to campus to play basketball, that's possible. But there could also be community members. And so I, I do see that, not as much now that the weather's cooling down, but during this year, I mean, up until probably two weeks ago, like it was like a full on, like, you know, it was really cool. It was like a full on park vibe in the sense, like public park vibe. People had music playing, they were, you know, um, uh, men and women out there flirting and talking and people performing for the crowd, people videotaping themselves, putting on, on their Instagram. It was really, really cool, the kind of vibe it had. And it, it, it had the vibe, and especially this year, because we're back in person, right, in terms of our educational practices. But, you know, students don't want to be inside because they have to wear their mask when they're socializing. So socializing outside you're able to have your mask off. You're able to flirt properly uh, <laughs> with with one's one's you know potential suitor, perhaps. And so it became like a a real park setup, like what what I used to see growing up. I mean, there was always a basketball game going on and people competing, and 
but there was just like this whole world outside of the basketball court of boyfriends and girlfriends and children playing and music playing. And it's actually been kind of cool to see um, about this kind of mingling going on. And I haven't seen or haven't heard of it. You know, I'm a, I'm a faculty member, so I don't always hear things, but I haven't seen any problems with that. Um, I have seen a couple times the university security um, will actually come down and park their car and just kind of sit and kind of just like, just kind of make their presence known, not, not drive around like they normally do and parking services drives around. But a couple of times the police officers have come and just parked and just kind of sit there for a while. And, you know, and I, I don't know if it's to, to make sure that, um, you know, uh, that people know that the police are here. I'm not quite sure, but that's the only thing I've seen in terms of university police engaging uh, with what's going on on the court. I mean, you work on surveillance, so you know about the, the power of, of sort of public performance of surveilling others, right? Um, this is something, you know, that, that uh, John and I have even noticed when we brought a basketball hoop to the visitor center parking lot, that, that there will be a, a park ranger who just sits in his car. You know, like uh, on the other side of the parking lot. Um, so, and and the question of you know where the new hoops that will hopefully be installed in Forest Park um, is very much wrapped up in surveillance because it, it looks as though they they are going to build them near the visitors center, which presumably is a spot from which uh, the basketball facilities can be closely surveilled. But I don't know enough about you know Noah. You do, but it, it's a fascinating. Uh, sort of uh, sociological concept about an historical concept about how certain sports have become so racialized in our country, right? The way that we think of soccer, um, golf over against the way we think about basketball and increasingly football, but football is a little more difficult because, you know, you need so many people to play and all that stuff, but um, or tennis versus basketball. And you know, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of the movie about Venus and Serena's life that's coming out soon. Mm-hmm. King Richard that's coming out and just about how that, that movie can be read a number of ways, but it's also being read as how tennis increasingly because of Serena and Venus became a sport increasingly, but certainly not overwhelmingly a sport that has been identified with, with, people of color more now, right, than it was before Serena and Venus. I mean, even with Arthur Ashe and, um, and, and, and uh, uh, my blanket, Wilma Rudolph, um, even with those two uh, folks, um, it, tennis was still overwhelmingly thought of as a white sport. And so it just, yeah, it's just fascinating to me the way that this plays out in our, in our society. Absolutely. And that's exactly the direction that I was going in, because I think part of, you know, obviously a big story of Whereas Hoops is highlighting how specifically anti-Black racism functions in relation to public space, right? Like that, that the, the, the incipient fear is, or the incipient reasoning to not have basketball is to keep Black men specifically out of the public space. And if it were the case that building basketball hoops would mean only black men would use them. We'd still favor that because there's no reason to fear black men uh, playing sport. 
But the fact of the matter is, as you just pointed out with your anecdote of who's playing on the South 40, basketball is a game with the broadest appeal in this country and around the world, right? Like, uh, and and it's not just about um, racial representation. It's about gender diversity. It's about, you know, sort of uh, all the different sort of cultural ways that people have embraced the game. And so it's, 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 the, the, the persistence of this, this structural racism that has kept basketball out of Forest Park and in fact caused basketball to re- be removed from other St. Louis parks, not only hurts, you know, uh, black people, it hurts everyone. It impoverishes the entire St. Louis cultural landscape that these stereotypes have, have been so strong for so long. So I think, yes. thank you for sharing um, those anecdotes about about who is embracing the game because it's, you know, it, if you, J- John and I have uh, posted about this on our Instagram account. If you look at the, at the basketball map of St. Louis, the St. Louis city map of where they have basketball facilities, it's almost all in the North side of the city. They think that the rest of, of the city is not interested in basketball basically, wow. um, which is just such a noxious and terrible <laughs> thing to be the case. Um, yeah, well, one of the things that's cool, and I misspoke earlier, I met Athea Gibson as far as tennis. I'm sorry, uh, mm-hmm. Wilma Rudolph was track. But one of the things I do love about the South 40 courts down here and watching people play is that it is one of the, it is an integrated space um, that, you know, that you can see people from different racial backgrounds and different body types playing this game, you know, Um you have a good number of our Asian students who play, African-American students, white students, and they're all out there playing together, you know, and I think that it's, it's, it's nice to kind of watch and the way that, and even the styles of basketball, I like watching as a fan, you know, you, you can see people who are more influenced from street ball, the way that you play street, you see others who have probably been more influenced by um, the, the kind of uh, indoor, college high school trained basketball which is you know plays a little different way um our brothers and sisters from asia right you know the way and um, the way that basketball is played there native american brothers and sisters so I, that's one of the things that i, I kind of enjoy uh, watching as well i'm just a basketball fan so yeah Lerone, could you tell us a little bit more just kind of zooming out a bit about your wider relationship with basketball um do you, do you ever play any of the games on the South 40? Do you play otherwise? Are you a fan? Are you following college or, or pro hoops? I'm a huge fan. Let me just get something out of the way. I mean, uh, it, the students have asked, you know, like who's the old guy, you know, sort of, you know, creepily watching us from the side, you know, to, like, and, you know, and if I have my basketball shorts on and a t-shirt, like when the weather was warm, and I'd be going to get my mail or something. They'd be like, yo, my man, you want to run? And, you know, that always makes me feel good because apparently they think I'm still young enough to do so. Um, but I've always said no for fear that I'm going to end up playing against one of my students. And A, <laughs> and A I'm going to get way too intense and they're going to be like, Professor Martin's a jerk. Yep. Or B, <laughs> or B, they're going to like block my shot and they go brag to all their friends. Like, you know, yeah, I blocked Professor Martin's shot. You know what I mean? He's going to give me a C because he's pissed. Right. <laughs> like, you know, I don't want anything like that. So I haven't played with students. Um, I uh, used to play with a group of guys of 40 and over, which was itself pretty, pretty cool. We used to play at Forsyth School, um, which is an elementary school around here. Um, and a group of guys 
a great great group of guys who we all became you know pretty close um it was only about 15 of us and um it was fun to play over that we were all 40 plus all in our respective careers you know reliving our hoops dream our hoop dreams and so that was fun to watch fun to play um Growing up around basketball, though, um, I loved it. First, I was a football fan. And then as I started growing taller, but not thicker, um, it became very clear that football was not in my future. So I ended up falling in love with basketball and played in junior high, played in high school, was captain of my high school team, uh, but was loved basketball, but was better at track. So I went off to, to college and ran track, but basketball has always still been my first love. So I follow, um, I follow uh, college and NBA uh, basketball pretty, pretty closely. And I happen to know that you are a, uh, a LeBron fan. Can you tell us more about that? <laughs> yeah, man, I'm, I'm born and raised in Ohio. Uh, North Northwest Ohio. He's from Northeast Ohio, you know, and so I'm just a huge fan of LeBron, uh, his work ethic, but also some of the things that he's done off the court, especially in his uh, part of the state in terms of education. I'm just a huge fan of what he's done. And I think, I think the the level of perseverance, the level of hard work that I've seen him do, it just makes me a fan. And, um, and an admirer. And I think that um, the, all the championships he's gone to and, and, and lost, he still is, works hard and, and still believes in himself. And I admire that. And the other thing that I admire is also as a person, man, is how do you, how do you find a guy or find a or human being who's primarily raised by their mother, who was very young, she was 16, and then he's kind of in the limelight, basically since he, from the time he's like 15 on. Cover Sports Illustrated as a senior in high school, comes to the NBA, his first game in the NBA, I think he scores like 20 plus points. And, and for the most part, you know, one of the biggest uh, detractors, the, you know, there are several things they could point out, but probably the biggest one about the, the public mistakes this, this, this young man made was like that decision uh, thing that he broadcasted about leaving the state of Ohio, which let me be clear, I mean, hurt really bad as, a, as someone who's from Ohio. But if you look over his life and you think about how he's been in the public square for so long, and if that's one of the biggest faux pas this, this, this guy has made publicly, right? I mean, I just have a great deal of admiration for that, about how someone lives in the public eye for that long and is able to do their best to try to maintain a certain level of commitment, integrity, and try their best to make good decisions. You know, I, I admire that about him a great deal. Why don't we talk about that a little bit? I mean, this is sort of engaging my own research out of where, outside of where I hoops, my research on sports fandom. But, um, you know, the, the decision, uh, yeah, he has this like a special on ESPN. With, uh, that's something that most uh, free agents don't generally do when they choose to, to sign with another team. Um, but the, the fan reaction to the decision yes. right, um, was really ugly. Um, and when I teach uh, sports history or in my basketball course, Empire of Hoop, and we talk about free agency and, and what it means for these young hyper-athletic black men to be able to make their own decisions about their career paths, mm -hmm. their futures, 
and how fans react so negatively. So, and I often show a, a, a short clip from a Cleveland news station of um, almost exclusively white fans, like burning his Jersey and effigy yes. and, and like shouting how traitorous he is. And it's a really, it's hard not to read that as a, re, as a sort of racist uh, grievance, right? A sort of, you belong to us. You don't, you don't get to make those decisions for yourself. So I was wondering, you know, what your experience of, of that backlash to the decision was like being a, a fan of LeBron's, a, a fan of the, you know, the Cavaliers at that time. And then this, this sort of white lash in that moment, how, how you perceived it. Well, you know, I, I appreciate you asking me that question because, you know, I, from reading your book, I, I know now it helps me better understand my experience of these fan narratives um, as, as I've learned from you, Noah. And, you know, I recall my family, uh, my mom, my dad, my sisters, my brother, you know, at first, all of us being like, oh, man, he's leaving. Like, oh, man, like, why did he have to do it on television? Why did he have to, you know, you know, do it like this? Like, oh, God. And, you know, and Cleveland just has this long history, as many people know, of just sports heartbreak. You know what I mean? From the Browns, Bernie Kozar. You know, don't get me started. All right. I'm having a good morning. I won't, <laughs> I won't rehash that history. But immediately, Noah, I think. Um, I quickly pivoted when I saw the reaction to the kind of the way in which I started reading it as an African-American. And not only is that as African-American, as African-American man, and then as an African-American historian. And I immediately began to kind of shift and say, you know what? No. And I think it was my sister, Nicole, who is a very passionate sports fan, who, who said it, you know what I mean? Like exactly what you said. She, she pointed out the kind of the way that these fan narratives were coming out as if they owned they owed they owned him in a very strange way when when people go from law firm to law firm no one does this to them right even if they are a hometown hero right what if they born and raised locally go off to law school and go to law school and then come home open up a law firm People often will say, oh, wow, well, you're, you have an opportunity to take your law firm, your talents to Miami, right? <laughs> um, man, you know, we're going to miss you here, but congratulations. But there was something about LeBron and sports and race that made this feel, for whatever reason, for, for many, I think, white fans, that how dare you, like, how dare you assert your, 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 uh, your, um, your own autonomy? and do this to us because we own you, you belong to us. Mm -hmm. And I think what really sealed the deal for me in that regard was the owner, Dan Gilbert, the letter that he wrote to sports fans and basically saying like, you know, you're nothing and you know, LeBron and, and, and we're gonna win a championship without you and blah, 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 blah. Which again, brings me back to my standing for LeBron in that he still decided to go back mm -hmm. to Cleveland and do what he said he was going to do and bring a championship to the city and to the state, frankly. And um, that I thought, you know, showed a level for, for, to me, for him to be able to be mature and see the bigger picture, because we all know we could have gone anywhere to play. And he decided to come back, look past some of the things that Dan Gilbert said, and, and, and he did what he wanted to do. I mean, he took the Cavs to four straight finals. And uh, it was it was amazing, you know, to watch. Uh, didn't work out, 
we worked out one, which was, you know, arguably one of the most historic wins in NBA Finals history coming back from 3-1 against, which arguably people have argued was the best team the NBA had ever seen in the Golden State Warriors. So winning, you know, winning over, winning over uh, 73. 73-9, right? Didn't they break 73-9. The they beat the Bulls record, yeah. And so, now you get to anyway. move to Northern California and remind everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. I've, I've, people are saying to me, like, you know, you're going to have to, you know, like, you know, don't don't be shouting too loud. You know, you're in, you're in Golden State territory now. So, But, no, I think that that moment was a powerful moment, and I, I, you know, about the way the fan air is And, I mean, I'm not a baseball um, scholar. You know, I, I keep up with sports. But, I mean, I, I, I'm pretty sure that Kurt Flood in his battle for free agency was something, was something similar, right, in the sense of how dare you, especially in baseball, which is increasingly even more now, unlike most sports in this country, is increasingly seeing a lack of African-American uh, players and participants. I mean, I just saw a story this morning. I didn't read it. But the headline was like the Atlanta Braves victory, like in the World Series, highlights the decreasing number of African Americans in professional baseball. And you know, Kurt Flood did this. You know, obviously in terms of initiate uh, kind of you know commencing free agency in the sport, and I think paid for that. And um, but we see he did it in a sport that was majority white, and you know he received backlash for that. And so it was interesting to see that in some ways LeBron, um, you know, some 30 you know, some years later, experienced something very similar. So I think it, it is a commentary on, on America and where we see ourselves, but also where sports sits in our culture, right? There's, this, there's Noah talked about these narratives and how they really, you know, speak a great deal about what we think about race and class and ownership and things of this nature. Ron, we touched on your, your research just very briefly earlier, but um, we wanted to ask if you could articulate a little bit um, how your work on Black religion and surveillance uh, intersects with, uh, you know, questions of basketball, the sports landscape of Forest Park, and even the park within kind of the greater St. Louis area. Oh, thank you for that. You know, um, my interest here, um, I, I look at surveillance and I look at the way in which um, the FBI in particular has engaged uh, faith communities in American history, especially um, during the reign of J. Edgar Hoover, who led the FBI in this country from 1924 until 1972. So 48 years, the longest serving uh, uh, appointed official in American history, 48 years. Um, and I think where I see sports coming into play is that in this country, especially in the 19th century moving forward, we've often thought about recreational practices and how they shape morals and manners. So throughout this country, there's always been, especially in urban America, right? How do we have healthy amusements is kind of a phrase that came about as American cities were developing. How do we have healthy spaces for people to engage in amusement? Because that will somehow be shape and be a reflection of their moral commitments and manners, right? So, you know, whether it's muscular Christianity where men like the YMCA are to, you know, to uh, 
uh, perform certain feats of masculinity in sports in order to show that they are healthy Christian men, or whether it's certain ideas that women shouldn't be in sports because it's it's a masculine space, right? Women are to remain, you know, soft and and and, and feminine. All these ideas, you know, go on in this country, especially as urban uh, urban centers develop. And I think St. Louis is a great place for that because one of the things that St. Louis tried to do, like a lot of urban spaces, was have outdoor amusements so people could get outside, get fresh air, get outside of cramped tenement apartments, get outside of you know cramped industrial areas, and get outside into parks and into spaces to engage in healthy uh, amusement practices. And so, you know, these spaces, you know, often were racialized, not just by segregation. Obviously, we know that in this country, Jim Crow laws, but also just in terms of the kinds of sports and practices that develop in these segregated spaces. And I just find these to be fascinating. So the way that narratives around race, sports narratives, shape the way we understand who's supposed to be in certain places and what they're supposed to be doing. And so even if it's not federal surveillance, it's a kind of public surveillance um, about, well, if an African-American or a person of color is in a certain space, if they're not performing the activity that our narratives tell us they're supposed to be performing, then there's concern and they must be watched, right? So if we're in a certain uh, establishment, whether it's dining or amusement, whatever it may be, and a person of color is maybe not serving, right? But is a customer or a consumer, right? we've got to watch them. We've got to make sure that, you know, that, that they're, they're, they're not going to do something they're not supposed to do, or they're not here to harm me or whatever it may be. So I think that's how I see my work connecting to this and why I uh, play a you know armchair sociologist out here on the South Forty watching watching these kids play basketball and 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 the meaning that I I think that I, I derive from it all. I I can think of one potential point of intersection that may relate to to your upcoming uh, new position at Stanford. Perhaps you'll find papers that reflect this. But um, when I teach in my sports history class about the Olympic Project for Human Rights, Harry Edwards' initiative to try and get athletes in 1968 black athletes to um, to go on strike, basically, to not participate in, in those Olympics because, um, you know, the, the track and field team then, as now, was um, large majority Black. And, um, mm-hmm. there, you know, it was 1968, so there's, there's a lot of trauma and, and things going on throughout the country. Um, in any case, my students read, read what Edwards write. They see the, 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 black, the so-called Black Power salute on the medal stand, uh, uh, Tommy Smith and John Carlos, and they think of this as a pretty radical thing. And then I try to introduce the, to them that, that just before he was assassinated, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. expressed his support for OPHR and for Harry Edwards and for mm-hmm. what they were doing. And, and, and that for a lot of them, especially the, the white students, seems to contrast with the sort of, um, sort of whitewashed, softened uh, idea of who yeah. Martin Luther King Jr. was. They, they, they don't think of him as someone who could be associated with a movement quite as radical as the OPHR. That's a great point. Yeah. That's that's a great point. And, and, you know, and I I really appreciate you telling me that because I, I I did, I did not realize that because um, I realized that the Olympics occurred that year in December, right? And and October. 
October. Okay. And they did participate. It was after his death. Yes. But, but I rem- the I re- movement started. You know, yes. The earlier. movement. Yeah. 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 So I never realized that before he passed away that he had given his support to them. Because I, I recall reading um, The Revolt of the Black Athlete. I think it's is it mm-hmm. Douglas Hartman. Is that the book? Uh, the Revolt of the Black Athlete is Harry Edwards' uh, book. But then Hartman wrote a, a subsequent history yes. of, that probably has that in the title too. Yes. And, and I remember recalling when, according to that narrative, it's, it's when Tommy Smith, I believe, is running at UT Knoxville. No, UT, U, yeah, UT, University of Tennessee, Knoxville. And they announce that Martin King has been assassinated and the crowd cheers. Mm. And it's some of the athletes at that time are saying like, okay, like, yeah, like this, we're not, we're not gonna participate. We're not, we're not, like this country is sick. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea that, 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 that King had thrown his support that way before he passed away. I appreciate you telling me that. I mean, one of the things that I learned from watching the Muhammad Ali documentary that recently was on PBS with our, our dear brother, Ken Burns, uh, I, I, I knew that, um, that O.J. Simpson decided not to be a part of, of, of that conference of Black athletes coming together. But what that... Muhammad Ali documentary showed was that George Foreman, when he won the gold medal in that Olympics, right. he's in the ring with the American flags. And so how then Ali uh, uses that in his um, match against Foreman as so like, like you're the kind of white man's champion, you're the American champion, mm-hmm. I'm the black man's champion. And I, that I did not put together about George Foreman and which is fascinating because George Foreman, you know, ended up becoming a minister. And, and so, yeah, you know, in addition to the George Foreman grill, but every college student, <laughs> at least college students of my era, every college student's sure. best friend, best friend. But yes, um, I think that uh, that's that's fascinating. I mean, I appreciate you telling me that about 1968. Yeah. If you find any papers that reflect that, I'd love to. I'd love to hear I, <laughs> you already know. I promise. I promise All you right. have a word. Well, let's tie things back locally. We just got a few minutes left. I want to wrap this up, but um, just to you know, we've talked about your experience as a basketball player and as a basketball mm-hmm. fan. But I'll, I want to also tie things back to the park, um, you know, because this okay. is a project about Forest Park. So you know, you've been you've been living uh, just uh, a block from the park for a few years now. Um, before that, you know, you're in and around Wash U, so you, mm-hmm. you know the park well. But uh, you know what. How does the park uh, interact with your life? How, how do you potentially do you uh, engage the park? Are there particular activities you like to participate in there? Um, and maybe in relation to some of the issues we talked about with regard to um, surveillance and, and black men and the fraught history of policing in the city and around the country. Um, perhaps if, if you've had experience in the park where you felt like that came into play. Well, um, I, I, I love the park. It's one of the things I'm gonna miss about St. Louis is the public comments in the city. Um, is seemingly, you know, um, uh, available to all, seemingly, right? Um, the way that there's so many beautiful parks here and then the museums and the zoo, I mean, it's just a wonderful public comments and I really appreciate it. And I really think it goes back to what I was saying earlier about thinking about spaces of amusement and morals and manners. But from my experience, I, I, I've enjoyed going to Forest Park. Um, I've gone there, I've run in Forest Park. Um, the History Museum, I absolutely love. My family comes to town, taking all of them to the Art Museum. 
the Great Basin. I mean, it's just a beautiful space. And I've given talks at the History Museum and I, I love, I love the, the, the programming it does there. It's a beautiful space, but I mean, it, it, it has always struck me that like, you know, we've got golf, we got tennis, we got rowing, <laughs> we've got all these. And until five years ago, a Confederate monument. A Confederate monument, that's right, you know, and just, it's always struck me about that. Like, man, we've got all these sports, but who does it say these sports, you know, cater to? And it's just, it's always, who does the, the space cater to in that regard? What are the signals about the kind of space that this is, right? That we've got these sports, we've got a Confederate monument. Um, it, it's always been striking me as someone who's not from St. Louis. I did notice those things. Um, I had a similar experience, I think, more intense for sure. You know, I did my PhD uh, at Emory in Atlanta and, you know, Stone Mountain, you know, Stone Mountain Park. I mean, right. The driving out there on Confederate Drive, you know, and, and, and the, the Confederate generals and Jefferson Davis and that huge granite carving. You know, I mean, that that says something to me about, you know, the kind of claims on that space and. um and it makes me also think about, at least in the St. Louis context, about my taxes, right? Like I'm thinking like I work in this community, I pay payroll taxes and my taxes are being used to support this Confederate monument, which communicates to me, right? That this is a, the, the, the claims on this space are made by a certain kind of history that is thinks about my subjugation as, you know, the good old days and <laughs> thinks about black subjugation as the good old days. And so, I mean, I've always thought about that going into the park. There are parts of me that say, I'm going to run here and work out here as, you know, um, an act to counter those kinds of narratives. Like you didn't want people like who look like me in this space. So therefore I'm going to be in this space and I'm going to enjoy it like any other citizen who pays taxes in this community. Um, I lived in the city, um, uh, city of St. Louis, up until I became a faculty fellow. So I, you know, I, I lived in the city, paid taxes in the city. So I, you know, I've, but there are other days you're just like, I don't really feel like I have the emotional energy to do that today, you know? So I think I'll just work out at the gym or something. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it, it, yeah, it is something that, I think that psychologically that I take for granted that this is something I'm going to have to work through, um, you know, more often than not. And Lerone, Noah mentioned earlier, um, we attended the Forest Park um, Advisory Board meeting uh, last week where um, we were pleased to learn that, that, that plans are continuing to move forward to, to put some courts into Forest Park, um, maybe, maybe 2023. Um, from what we were hearing, um, if you could just magically make basketball facilities appear there, like where would you put them? How many courts would you have? What amenities in, in your ideal kind of hoop setup in Forest Park? Oh, man. Well, you know, I think something like what they have here um, on the South 40 is nice. You know, you've got, you've got 
six hoops, which means you could run, you know, you could run two five on five games at the same time and have some hoops on the side for people to be warming up and shooting, getting ready, getting loose, you know, because they got next, you know, and you could just treat it like you would the rest of the facilities in the park. You know, the hoops would be available while the park is open. And if they wanted to, you know, they could remove the hoops if they wanted to when the park is closed. I mean, there's no reason to treat it, in my opinion, like anything else in the park. You know, it would be the park would be open a certain hour. I'm sure they do the same thing for tennis or they do the same thing for the boathouse, right? When the park is closed, you know, there's certain facilities that are no longer available. And I think that you could just do that with basketball. I think to do anything else, I think would would stigmatize, further stigmatize. I think that it should be treated like any other activity in the park. I mean, that that would be my my dream about it. I think it'd be really, really nice and provide the same type of services you do for other facilities. You know, and I know there are restaurants there and things of that nature. So I mean, you could you could still have the same rules, you know, you got to have a shirt on and you got to have clothes on and shoes on if you want to enter into the restaurant. I mean, you know, like the kind of normal, I mean, the only thing that's that's basketball maybe a little different is that typically guys do play shirts and skins. So, you know, so you don't want people coming in while you're having a cucumber sandwich with no shirt on in a restaurant, (laughs) you know, you may may not, maybe don't want that, but other than that, you know, like make sure you got, you know, clothes on and you, if you want to go eat you want to go eat go eat you know so that would be my awesome. idea. is there any corner of the park that you would you would most like to see like a, a spot in the park that you think would be good you know that's a great question i was thinking about that you know and i i don't know i mean there's such there's so many beautiful spaces in the park and i you know i'm trying to think about where it would be i'm thinking both I'm not an architect, but I'm thinking about space the way John probably would. But I'm also thinking about uh, convenience, right? About where would be a good place for cars and parking for, for traffic. So I don't know. I don't know. I, it, a lot of that would depend on how it would be available in terms of where people could park their cars and things of that nature. Yeah, I mean, I think um, we've had, you know, different ideas. Some people have suggested, you know, putting it right where the Confederate monument used to be. It's a kind of oh, wow. you know, message that I know, I know John would like the, the hoops, you know, right across the street from Sam Fox. So if you go off out on a lunch break and, uh, and, and throw up some jumpers, that would be right next to the golf course too, which would be an interesting uh, thing. But yeah, it looks like from, from what we've um, observed that they're, they're going to put them pretty centrally located by the visitor center, which I think is fine. Um, there'll be yeah. good parking there, but but it's a huge and beautiful space. You know, Central Park, which is smaller than our Forest Park, has two sets wow. of them. <laughs> Does it really? Uh, yeah, there's two separate uh, I never knew that. Mm-hmm. Now I knew it's, it's both are designed by the Olmsted architect firm, right? Is that right? Frederick Olmsted are both of those parks. Am I wrong about that? I don't know. I think you're right. And I, I didn't, but I didn't realize that Central Park had basketball. Mm-hmm. And it, I, I knew Central Park was smaller land size than, mm-hmm. than Forest Park, which is crazy. Um, because Central Park just feels just massive to me. But what I didn't realize um, is that they had two basketball courts in New York freaking city. Mm-hmm. Wow. So who knows? Maybe after we get this set of courts, we can start dreaming about the next one. 
<laughs> yeah, man. 2083. <laughs> 60 years later, That's 2083. <laughs> well, Lerone, this has been such a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for, for taking the time to join us. And, and um, you know, I'll express this to you off of the podcast. But for the record, we're so thrilled for you. I'm so excited for your next, you. your next adventure. And, um, yeah, I wish you all the best. Thank you. And thanks for having me, guys. I really love the podcast and just keep up all the work and the advocacy you're doing. I really appreciate it. Judging by the basics, y'all already comfortable stuck up in the matrix.